0: Chelsea and I recently celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Last week, we celebrated our firstborn's seventh birthday, and this week, we're going to celebrate our third? Yeah, third, thirdborn's third birthday. So naturally, we've begun to sift through old pictures and videos that we've taken, and and reminisce on the past. Have you ever done this? Gone through old photos? I know some of you have. At least Kay has. She told me she was doing it on Friday. These, these pictures allow us to get a firmer grip on memories that would otherwise find a way to slither out of our minds. Indeed, they help us to tie ourselves back to the past, relive it in some ways. We're in Leviticus 23, and though the Israelites don't have uh, pictures or videos to help them reminisce, God has given them stories and set celebrations inside of their yearly and weekly calendar to help them to remember who they are. And who he is. We've been walking through Leviticus 23. And we have seen festival after festival. Reminding the people that they have been saved out of slavery in Egypt. And adopted as God's sons and daughters. Indeed he is the holy God. Who has redeemed to himself a people. That he now calls to be holy. And so we come to the final feast in Leviticus chapter 23, the feast of booths or tabernacles, maybe shelters, I think is the word the the CSB uses. And this feast has at its very heart the goal of reminding God's people where they came from, what God has done, and who they are to be. Indeed, it... Causes them to relive their past, rejoice in their present, and to look to the future. That's the exhortation. Relive the past, rejoice in the present, look to the future. And I think the main idea of the chapter is this, that God's people are to give thanks, remembering God's great work of salvation, rejoicing in God's provision in the harvest, and teaching God's word and works to future generations with that in mind we'll work through our outline which you have before you but first let's pray father we come before you this morning thirsty all of us looking for that living water that christ gives Pray that You would cause it to well up within us just a little more. Thank You that in Christ, all of our deepest longings are satisfied. Our spiritual thirst is is quenched. Yet we come once more to feast upon the words of life. Your Word, asking to be filled with Your Spirit as You apply those words to us. Lord, we pray that You would speak, that me we might hear. And we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're going to start in the middle of this pericope in verses 37 through 38. So Leviticus 23, starting with verse 37. These are the Lord's appointed times that you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for presenting fire offerings to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each on its designated day. These are in addition to the offerings for the Lord's Sabbaths, your gifts, all your vow offerings, and all your free will offerings that you give to the Lord. These verses kind of interrupt Moses' instruction on the Feast of Booths. And so it's, it's like a conclusion before the chapter actually concludes. And what he wants to do is call our attention to something that's very important. What he's saying is, make sure that you keep these festivals, but don't keep them at the expense of your regularly scheduled worship right? Continue not only to bring your regular offerings, but also worship the God in accord with the instructions laid out for you in this chapter. Don't don't just put those regular offerings to the side. They're, They're important. And so we've seen the whole chapter kind of working together to remind the people who they are and who God is. It's funny how this chapter works together with the rest of the things that we've seen in Leviticus. Some of the, the odd things in the life of the people of Israel. Odd to us, that is. Right? They have clean laws. They have laws about cuisine, what they can eat. There's even laws about what kind of clothing they can wear. And we take these and we, we add them to the calendar, and what we see is that in all of the Israelite society, God has provided for them a kind of classroom, that continually teaches over and over again that they are His holy people, and therefore they are called to live distinct lives, lives of devotion to Him. We, we see that, right? The, the clean laws, uh, the, the cleanliness, r- ritual purity laws remind the people like where they can go and where they can't go in the camp, reminds them of God's purity and His power. The food laws remind the people, along with the clothing laws, that, that they need to be distinct from the nations and the cultures around them. In calendar, it, it reminds them that every moment of every day, every second of every week is God's. Their lives are to be oriented around the king who dwells in his palace, tent, his palace, tabernacle at the center of their society. I mean, can you you imagine living in a society like this? Every time you ate, you would be reminded of who God is. Every time you you picked out something to wear, you would be reminded of who God is and who you are. When you went places, you would be reminded of who God is and who you are. When when you tried to just fill out your planner, you would be reminded of who, who God is. Well, you know, you do you want to go to the beach this, in the seventh month? Can't. Remember, that's, that's the month of the fall feast. There's, there's three feasts that month. The first, the 10th, and the 15th. And the one on the 15th, the Feast of Booths, it's like eight days. And so it's, basically our whole month is gone with these feasts. You're, you're, I can't. Each week there's that Sabbath day of rest. Like, no work. Do you want to go gather sticks this Saturday? No, can't. That's the Sabbath day. It's the Lord's. I wonder if we might benefit from just just trying to attempt to keep these kind of laws in our own lives for just a week. Christ has certainly fulfilled them all as we've talked about to this point, but I'm willing to wager that if you set your mind on trying to keep these kind of laws throughout your week, trying to be ritually pure and, you know, can I wear this polyester shirt, are there two fabrics in there, that you would think of God much more often than you do now. God is bringing His glory and His centrality, His worthiness, constantly before the minds of the people. And studying this, I went, man, it must have been really, really hard to forget about God and to rebel against Him if you were an Israelite. I mean, look, look at all this, all these reminders. And then actually, they found a way to worship other gods and to forget about him and to sin. I mean, a cursory look at the book of Judges will show us this. Really, a look at the whole of Scripture. We see that the people indeed forget God. And typically in Israel, it's because they've been very, very blessed and they're very, very prosperous Moses gives that warning in Deuteronomy 7, take heed lest you forget the Lord your God when you have eaten and are full. And it's not soon after they come into the promised land and they've eaten and they are full that they forget the Lord their God and turn their attention to other things. And so, two questions. What tempts you To forget God. Are you in danger of forgetting God? And then a follow-up question. What are some reminders that you might build into your life so that you do not forget God? I think one of the neat things in in the book of Joshua, when the people are going and they're taking the promised land they keep putting up these piles of stones all over the place, these little monuments to remind them of the victories that God has given. Sometimes I think, why don't we put little, little monuments, little reminders in our lives to remind us of God's past faithfulness? We have a bad habit, and I can't remember who said this. I heard it somewhere. It just came into my mind. But we have a bad habit of riding our blessings in sand And our trials in stone. Friends, we want to write God's blessings and His faithfulness in stone. Maybe for some of us, that will be literal stones that you can pile around your house. That's that's cool, whatever. Uh, Or or maybe you go, I'm going to be a little bit more aesthetically pleasing uh, and put art in your house that reminds you. Pictures, keep a journal of God's faithfulness. We want to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us. We want to relive the past so that we might remember that God was faithful then. He's faithful now. And he's going to continue to be faithful into the future. That's part of what's going on with the Feast of Booths. Listen to how Moses describes this feast for us. Verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites the festival of shelters, tabernacles, booths to the Lord begins on the 15th day of this seventh month and continues for seven days. There is to be a sacred assembly on the first day. You are not to do any daily work. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. On the eighth day, you are to hold a sacred assembly And present a fire offering to the Lord. It is a solemn gathering. You are not to do any daily work. Dropping down to verse 39. You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the 7th month for 7 days after you have gathered the produce of the land. There will be complete rest on the first day and complete rest on the 8th day. On the first day you are to take the product of majestic trees, palm, fronds, bows of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You are to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations. Celebrate it in the seventh month. You are to live in shelters for seven days. All the native-born Israelites must live in shelters so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared the Lord's appointed times to the Israelites. A lot of these features we've seen over and over again at this point, and so uh, we recognize the this kind of three characteristics of these holy times of the year. The people are going to remember what God's done, they're going to rest from their work, and they're going to gather together for worship to acknowledge God together. They're going to make offerings, and so a lot of these things are, are pretty typical. But there are also some atypical things about this feast. Right? One we've pointed out already, it lasts eight days. It is the longest feast. It's also the feast with the most sacrifices. And it's one of the three pilgrimage festivals, which means all the males in Israel had to attend this feast in the same way they did for Passover and the, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Harvest. But perhaps the most unique feature of this festival is embedded in its name, the Feast of Shelters. You can see why this would be the unique feature, that the people come and they take majestic tree branches and they build themselves lean-tos, shelters, tents to stay in for the duration of the festival for eight days. Now, think about it. Uh, think about for us, if each year in July is the seventh month, right? right? J- July, uh, we all, uh, their calendar is a little bit different, so I think it's like September, October for them. But anyway, we'll, we'll say July. Uh, and we, we all have to go to a specific location and we have to build little shelters to live in for the whole week while we worship God. Now, to some of you are like, I love camping. This That sounds great. To me, like, hey, do you want to go and break some twigs off of a tree, uh, build a little lean-to and sleep on the ground? Like, that doesn't sound like a good time to me. I'm out. But that's what, that's what they have to do. They're going to go to Israel and they're going to they're gonna build temporary shelters to stay in for the whole week. And the purpose is clear. It's to remind them of all the blessings that God has given them. It's that funny way of when we're deprived of all those things that we have, we really start to appreciate them. That old phrase, you don't know what you got till it's gone. Even going through a kitchen renovation and not having a kitchen is a little rough while they're fixing it. You're not allowed to complain about it, I always say, so I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, you know, it's more difficult to do uh, dishes in the bathtub than it is in the kitchen sink. Really makes you appreciate a kitchen. Likewise here, they are remembering their time in the wilderness. They're remembering what God has given them now. And that he has been, he's been faithful. They're to relive their past. A time when they camped in the wilderness as God was bringing them into the promised land. They're to remember where they came from and who their God is. He's the God who conquers their enemies, redeems them, and blesses them. When the people celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they dramatically portray what God has done. Likewise, this is what we do as a church when we participate in the Lord's Supper together. We are dramatically portraying what God has done. He took on flesh and had his body broken for us. He shed his blood on the cross for all who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Him. Indeed, when we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we remember the cross and we relive our conversion as we feast upon Christ. And we rejoice before the Lord our God who has accomplished this wonderful salvation. This feast calls the people to relive their past. And it calls them to rejoice in their present. Did you see that note in in verse 40? It says, get all these branches, and then the next thing, the command is, and rejoice. Rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. That, that, That note is played over again and more loudly in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Look at verse 13. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days. When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, all who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. Because? The Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands. Why? So that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. Feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks, and the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God. That he has given you. The people are to rejoice before God. They're to see what God has done and to give him praise. This is a great command. The commandments of the Lord, 1 John 5 says, are not burdensome. This is not a burdensome command for his people. Indeed, all the rules of God guide us into life and true and lasting joy as we trust in Christ more and more. His rules his laws are good and indeed this good command of rejoicing is is given to us we, we read of it this morning first Thessalonians 5 be joyful always we are to be a cheerfully defiant people our joy is to be rooted firmly and deeply deeply in Christ so that no worldly tempest can blow us over. and No earthly drought can wither our delight. We are to rejoice when the blessings are flowing, and that's, that's what's going on in this passage. Rejoice in the harvest. Re- rejoice when God's blessings are coming. It is good to enjoy God's good gifts too often we imagine we imagine God as just not as good of a father as some of our earthly fathers. Think that he's what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of strict and rigid. I mean, imagine like like we think it's not good to enjoy the things that God gives us. That's just wrong-headed thinking. I mean, can you imagine a father gets his child a gift, you know? Hey, here is the 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 baby doll that you really wanted. Here's that that Nerf gun that you have been waiting on. comes with a string, though. Do not enjoy it. If I see you enjoying this gift, you're going to be in big trouble. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And yet that's how some of us approach God. We act as if we should not enjoy what he has given to us in his goodness. Indeed, God is far more loving, far more gracious, far more benevolent and kind than any of our earthly fathers. And so when God gives to us good things, we should return our praise to him. We should enjoy them. And we should bless God for them and praise him. We should rejoice when he gives us blessing and we should rejoice when things are difficult. This, I think, is the harder of the two rejoicings. And yet we need to be cheerfully defiant so that our joy isn't contingent upon God's blessings, but rather it is built on our relationship with God. The gifts of God, blessings come and go, but our relationship with God is unassailable, unshakable. His love to us is unquenchable. What this means is that we can be joyful even when we are experiencing the deepest possible pain and suffering our lives will be full of suffering. Friends will betray us. People will die. Our bodies will get sick. Pandemics will come. And yet we are in Christ, we must learn this secret that Paul tells us of in Philippians 4. The secret of having plenty and having nothing and being joyful regardless of the circumstance. The secret is I can face any circumstance through Christ who strengthens me. When we are rooted in Christ, we can be cheerfully defiant, even when our world is falling apart. We can be people who sing, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. We can face trials and suffering with rejoicing because we know that our God is for us and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him according to his wisdom. And because we know that, we can obey James 1 and we can consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. Because we know that in those trials, God is at work in us, transforming us more and more to the image of Christ and storing up for us an eternal weight of glory that will make those trials seem very, very small. God is using even your most terrible suffering to produce glory for Himself and joy in you. This festival is meant to cause the people to relive their past. Even the difficult parts of it. Coming out of slavery. Walking and wandering through the desert. It's to cause them to rejoice at what God has done. Delivered them from their suffering. Delivered them from their slavery. And brought them into his promise. Brothers and sisters, this is what God has done and is doing for us. He is going to deliver us one day from all suffering into the promise of eternal resurrection life together with him and one another. He's already delivered those of us who are in Christ from the power and the penalty of sin. And one day he's going to deliver us even from the presence of sin. He keeps his promises. We, we can rejoice in the gifts he's given to us right now, in the eternal life that he's given to us right now, and in the life that is to come. This festival calls the people to rejoice. It also calls them to look to the future. I mean, not, just, not just long-term that God will continue to keep his promises, but in terms of teaching these things teaching about God to their children and to their families. Listen to to Deuteronomy 31.10. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Now put that together with verse 43 in chapter 23 of Leviticus. Why should we celebrate? What is part of the purpose of living in shelters? So that your generations, those who come after you, your children, so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in tabernacles when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The feast functions not only as a tangible reenactment of the past, but as a teaching mechanism. To teach their children and, and those among them about who God is and who they are as his people. Two thoughts. One, evangelism starts at home. With our children and our spouse. And it goes on to the rest of our family. If you are a Christian, your primary sphere of evangelism before you evangelize anywhere else is your family and your children. Those close to you. Those even those uncles and aunts and cousins and all the rest. You are to teach them about what God has done for you and what he is willing to do for them. They will lay down their arms of rebellion and put their faith in Christ. It's also funny, evangelism starts in the home But this is also the most difficult place to evangelize for many of us. Nevertheless, we we must. And I want to give you a word of encouragement. Even though your family may be the most difficult place to evangelize, difficulty is the soil in which miracles grow. The gospel works. God is faithful. Keep praying and keep sharing the gospel with your families. Teach about Jesus to your spouse and to your children. Also, don't be confused. Evangelism is not just for non-Christians. It's for Christians. You need to hear the gospel from your believing spouse. And they need to hear it from you. You don't ever graduate from the good news of Christ crucified for sinners and raised for their justification. Second thought, we see here that evangelism or teaching about who God is is a group project They're all gathered together at this feast and these other feasts and they're all teaching one another about who God is. They all know the stories. They all know the reason for the celebration. And so don't think of evangelism as an individualistic endeavor or as a one-time conversation. Understand it to be an ongoing relationship more often than not. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have a cable guy in your house and hopefully he's never going to come back again and maybe you try to share the gospel or pass him a book or invite him to church. But usually you're going to have longer term relationships with people. It doesn't have to be a one you don't have to get, you know, a whole systematic theology or into a conversation about philosophy of religion into this one 5-minute space. You don't have to elevator pitch people. You can talk about Christ and you can employ the resources that God has given you in the church. Invite people, invite your non-Christian friends to church so they can see Christians interact with one another. Invite your non-Christian friends to do things with you and your Christian friends, which will hopefully enable them to see there's something different here in the way these two people relate to one another. You know, they, they don't seem to have a ton in common, but they go to the same church and they talk about Jesus, which is kind of weird, that doesn't happen in my circles, evangelize together. The people of God gather and together teach about what God has done. And so we can see this festival is a time for remembering God's great work of salvation, rejoicing in his provision, and teaching his word and works to future generations. And we actually have it put on display for us in Nehemiah chapter 8. And the context of Nehemiah is really neat. Uh, The people have gone into exile, the Babylonian exile, so the temple was destroyed. People went all over the place. And now, uh, the remnant of Israel has been brought back, the temple has been rebuilt, and Nehemiah has just finished building the walls. And so he takes up the book of the law, and he reads God's word to the people. I love, you know, every preacher, I think, loves, uh, is it verse 11? I'm sorry, verse Eight, they read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. And the people respond to this preaching of the word with repentance and they're broken. And in Nehemiah and Ezra, they they say, stop that. This is not a day of mourning. This is a day that's holy. This is a day of rejoicing. And they get that famous line, the joy of the Lord is your strength. To eat fat and drink wine. Rejoice before the Lord your God. And this, this revival is kind of breaking out. It's in this context that we read verse 13 in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in tabernacles during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters, just as it is written. The people went out and brought back branches and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards in the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out from the book of the law of God every day, from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly In accord with the ordinance. And so the people rediscover this festival, at least the details of it. It seems that the festival was probably kept, but not in the way that it should have been. The people weren't doing the whole building of the the shelters, which is kind of important. And they say, Look, this is how we're supposed to celebrate this festival. It's coming up. Let's do it. And they all get together and they, they make their little tents, and there is great rejoicing. And Ezra's reading the law of God every day. It must have been especially special. So now, not only are they celebrating God delivering them out of slavery in the Exodus and bringing them into the Promised Land, but God returning them from exile back into the Promised Land. Remembering God's faithfulness, re- reliving their past, and they're rejoicing at what God has done. They're teaching one another about God's faithfulness. So that's the festival. Some of its functions. Let's talk quickly about how it is fulfilled. I think the first connection we see is in John chapter 1, verse 14. You'll be familiar with this verse. And the Word became flesh And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Really important here, translation, uh, the word for dwelt is literally translated tabernacled. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So you can see what, what John is doing here. He's alluding not only to the time when Israel dwelled in tabernacles and not only to the, the feast of, of booths, but to that great tabernacle palace in the wilderness where God dwelt among the people. And so he, he is saying, God is now not confined to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. He's come to dwell among you in the flesh. And so we can see that each booth foreshadows Jesus' own incarnation. A little bit further along in John's Gospel, the people familiar with the manna being delivered to God's people as they wandered through the wilderness ask Jesus, or they say to him, God gave our fathers manna to eat in the wilderness. So, what sign will you give to us so that we might believe who you are? And this is what, what Jesus says in John 6, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he's alluding to that time in the wilderness that the people spent where God met their needs and sustained them. And what Jesus says is, I'm not going to give you bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven. If you want your deepest needs met, come to me. I will meet your need. I will sustain you. I am the bread of life. And next we find in John chapter 7, Jesus actually at the Feast of Booths. Now, but before we, we look at what Jesus says at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's important to recognize another rite or ritual that grew up around the Feast of Booths in the time before Jesus. This is really interesting. Listen to what what D.A. Carson tells us. On the seven days of the feast, a golden pitcher was filled with water from the pool at Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the chauffeur, the trumpet connected with joyful occasions, were sounded. So you can they they go down to this pool, they've got some water out from the pool and they're coming back in towards the temple and the, the trumpet goes off three times. And they're, they're carrying this this water up in a pitcher. While the pilgrims watched, the priests, the priests walked around the altar with the pitcher, and the temple choir sang the Halel, which is Psalms one hundred and thirteen to one hundred and eighteen. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a luluv, which is a a willow and myrtle kind of twigs tied together. Um, And and they they had a piece of fruit in the other hand. And they, they lifted them up. And they all cried out, Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. The water was then offered to God in concert with the wine that was Offered with the daily sacrifice. Wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and poured out before the Lord. And so, as you can see, the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought to the Lord's provision of water in the deserts, to his provision of rain while they were in the land, and the water also anticipated the Lord's pouring out of his Spirit in the Messianic age. Pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the time when the Messiah would come, in which a stream of living water would flow from the sacred rock to the whole earth. So it's in this context that Jesus says at the Feast of Booths, on the last day, verse 37 of John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. Last day of the feast. It's it's the climactic day, the most important day. You've got got trumpet sounds. You've got the people giving thanks. They're they're singing the Hallel Psalms repeatedly. And it's in the midst of all of this that Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoa. Saying I am the Messiah. I can meet your deepest spiritual needs. You you thirst for that something that is missing in your life. I can satisfy that. You recognize a, a need in yourself. I can I can meet that need. I can quench that thirst for anyone who will come to me and drink anyone who believes in me Jesus is willing to give eternal life and joy to all who come to him to have their thirst quenched Do you thirst? Come to Jesus and drink. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. We thank you that you have rescued all who have put their faith in Christ from their sins. We thank you that we get to know this great love. A love that you demonstrated for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, it is incredible to know that you love us just as much on our worst day as you do on our best day. That in Christ, you are proud of us. That you delight in us as your sons and daughters. We thank you for adopting us through the propitious work of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.